Good morning, friends. Well, we are uh, in our summer quarter here where we start our services at a little bit different time, and it looks like you got the, got the message, so that was good. And we do hope, though, that, that as you continue to attend throughout the summer that you will come a bit early and enjoy uh, the fellowship of others in our church, which is one of the reasons we do this, so that we can gather out here in our courtyard or anywhere in the building, really, and, and enjoy one another and get to know each other a little bit better. Um, that is one of our uh, goals for the summer, and we're thankful that uh, we have uh, facilities to do these things. So <clears throat> welcome, and thank you for coming. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 30 here in a moment. But as we uh, move in that direction, I want to ask you a question. We've been talking about faith this morning. We've, we've sung about it. We've read about it. We've uh, been thinking about this idea of faith. Faith is, in fact, central to our Christian belief system, right? This is <laughs> who we are. We're a people of faith. The question that I want to ask you is, what does genuine faith look like? If you saw it, could you recognize it? Would you be able to identify it? That, that, not that, is genuine faith. This question is answered all throughout Scripture, particularly in the Gospel accounts, and here in Mark that we're studying, he gives examples, uh, many examples of authentic saving faith. You remember the author of Hebrews dedicated an entire chapter to describing the faith of some, and it was, you know, a long list of faithful people that we see there. In our story today, I think you'll, you'll be able to clearly see what saving faith looks like. In case you wouldn't have been able to pass the exam uh, in Bible class on what is genuine, authentic, saving faith, well, if you pay close attention today to our text and, and the exposition of it, you'll probably walk away knowing what authentic faith looks like. My hope and prayer are that today you'll be able to examine your own faith and confirm the authenticity of it. This is really why we listen to the Bible preached. This is why we, we come week after week, is so that we can hear the Word of God uh, uh, exposited before our eyes and ears so that we can, in fact, look in the mirror of God's Word and examine ourselves to see how we're doing in the faith. So to get, to get you into the context of Mark chapter 7, uh, I just want to remind you a little bit about what's happening at this point in Jesus' ministry. His Galilean ministry, that is the ministry up north in Galilee, is coming to a close. It's, in fact, over. The last part of that Galilean ministry took place in the debate he had uh, just a few days before this event uh, about with the scribes and, and Pharisees from Jerusalem about the source of defilement. Where does our defilement come from? The Pharisees and the scribes are saying it comes from without. It's from touching you know, things with unclean hands. It's from being a participant in a bad relationship, whatever. And Jesus said, no, no, none of those things are where the source comes from. The source of our defilement is from our heart. And this was the debate. Two days later, we find ourselves here in our text today, uh, going to a place called Tyre. 
Tyre and Sidon were coastal cities on the um, eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Tyre is located uh, just uh, outside of Israel. It's outside of the country of Israel in modern-day southern Lebanon. Tyre was a coastal city, and it, even though Mark calls this a retreat, a re they went away to a region in Tyre and Sidon uh, for a retreat. It really wasn't a Club Med type of retreat. It was a working retreat. It was a, it was a transitional period between uh, the Galilean ministry and the Judean ministry, and Jesus wanted to make sure his disciples understood what authentic, genuine faith looked like. So he's going to take them to a Gentile region and demonstrate to them with a Gentile woman what authentic faith looked like. And it's fascinating. And as we work through this, I think you'll see it. But anyways, it was, it was a, a time where Jesus explained to his uh, would-be apostles here what it looked like to have genuine faith. And so uh, once Jesus entered the Galilean territory here, the Gentile territory of Tyre and Sidon, the word quickly spread that Israel's Messiah was here, this great preacher from Galilee was here, and so uh, this woman who had the demon-possessed girl showed up pleading with Jesus for help. But on this occasion here that, that I'm going to read for you in a second, uh, Jesus was training his disciples in the intricacies of genuine faith. And whenever Jesus tells his disciples to pay attention, I want to teach you something about this or that or the other thing, it's a cue for us to pay attention ourselves, all right? So you, you have a need for clarity on what saving, genuine, authentic faith looks like. It's in our text today. There's eight points, in fact, that I want to make for you. But let's, let's read the text first together. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to Mark chapter 7 and look at verses 24 through 30. Jesus here is going to uh, illustrate what saving faith looks like. In other words, this is the kind of faith you need to be saved. Starting in verse 24 in Mark 7, And from there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and it did not and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syphophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go away, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the young child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the story that you just heard read from Josh. This is the same story, just Mark's version of it. And there are a few little differences that I'll point out along the way, but the points of each of these stories is the same. And by the end of the day, I hope, I hope you can see it clearly. So, like I said, I'm going to go through eight different marks of authentic, God-pleasing faith that are revealed in this text. And the first is this. Genuine, God-pleasing, authentic faith is possessed by needy people. Is possessed by needy people. Now, I don't know how you, you know, deal with uh, being taught something or learning something or sitting through a sermon in this case. I always used to make, you know, boxes in my head and check them off. Okay, I'm good on that one, good on that one. Oh, not that one. No, no, yep, yep, nope. And that's kind of the goal here today. I, I want you to, 
maybe out to the left of your column in your notes, put little boxes and check. Yes, no, yes, no, no, yes, all the way down. This one is easy. <laughs> is possessed by needy people. Everybody in the room is a needy person. The only problem is some of us don't, uh, don't believe it. <laughs> but we all are needy, so you can check a box there even if you don't think you're needy. Check, right? <laughs> and here's the thing. You'll never find God-pleasing, authentic, and saving faith in the self-sufficient individual. If you think you're self-sufficient, saving faith isn't part of your experience. The truth of the matter is, is that we are, in fact, all needy. Some of us just don't recognize it. Mark has been presenting, as you know, if you've been here, Jesus as the solution to chaos, the personal chaos, world chaos. Mark's book is about presenting Jesus as the solution to that problem in this world. And he's given example after example of proof of this claim that Jesus actually is the solution. Mark now wants us, his readers, to embrace God's solution, Jesus Christ. Once a person believes that Jesus is Christ, Jesus is God, Jesus is God's solution to our chaos, the next thing that quickly comes to the front is a recognition of your own sin. That comes right on the heels of believing that Jesus is God. In fact, if, if you don't believe that you're a needy person after the presentation of Jesus as God to you, then we have some spiritual issues that we need to back up and, and deal with. Mark is writing here that the source of defilement is within. Jesus is the solution to that problem, and he is the God of the universe. He wants us to believe this presentation of Jesus Christ. The woman in this story was an example of a needy person, wasn't she? I mean, she has so many things that are going against her, starting with the fact that she's a woman. Now, that's no offense to the females in the room. That was a first century opinion, all right? If you were a woman, you were a second-class citizen, period. You couldn't vote, etc. All these things were true of first-class opinion on women. Not only was she a woman, she was a Gentile, which meant she was an unclean woman to the Jew. She, she was to be, you know, avoided. In fact, Jews made a point of avoiding even the shadows of Gentiles. If you cross a shadow of a Gentile, you were automatically unclean. So don't go out when there's sun if you're at the market, so you don't, you know, run into a Gentile shadow. God forbid that, right? Well, uh, this is the woman. She was despised by Jews. She was a woman. She was a Gentile. And in this text, we learn that, that Jews regularly referred to Gentiles as dogs. Okay, so that, that's the level of, of this woman. Jesus even does a, a backhanded way of calling her that, which is a little concerning. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but the, the, the Jews in general regularly called Gentiles dogs. So this woman had needs, all right? Jesus came to meet this woman of need so that he could show this burgeoning faith in this woman to his disciples so they would understand themselves what authentic genuine faith looks like. This woman knew she was needy. She, she had no confusion on the matter. There was no pretense of not being needy. 
since Jesus made a regular practice of healing just Jews, Mark here makes a, a clear point that she wasn't a Jew. She was Syphophoenician. She was Gentile. She was needy, for starters. That was really important. She lived in a region, in fact, that was known for its pagan idolatry, which means that she was probably an idol worshiper. She had little idols in her house that she would bow to, pray to, and throw flowers in front of. She was an idolater. Another disadvantage when you are engaged with the Son of God, you would think, right? Jews believe that their religious leaders, including Jesus, rabbis, scribes, Pharisees, you know, the rest of them, would never allow this kind of person into their presence. They wouldn't want to be defiled. It's Jew, uh, Gentile, I mean, I'm a Jew, stay away. That kind of, that would the general attitude that Jews had. Much less having a conversation with one of these people, which we find Jesus doing here. But Jesus wanted to instruct his disciples in a few things, including the truth that we see, which Mark, I think, identifies pretty clearly here, that the gospel was not just meant for the Jews, but for the nations. And we can be thankful for that because we are the nations. You realize that? Uh, you're probably not a Jew. If you are, I'd like to meet you, but you're probably not a Jew in this room. Uh, you're a Gentile. And this here should be a point for a cause of rejoicing in your mind because the gospel is for us, not just the Jew. And for this woman, not just Israel. And also Jesus wanted to teach his 12, like I've mentioned already, that God-pleasing people are those who possess genuine faith. I mean, God-pleasing faith are those who are possessed by needy people. So can you check that box this morning? Honestly, I'm a needy person. Check. Let's go to the next one, the next mark of authentic faith, God-pleasing faith. It's this, verse 25. It comes from hearing. You say what? Yep. Authentic faith begins, is initiated by hearing. Look what it says in verse 25. Immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, heard of him. Why do I make a point of that? Well, because the New Testament does. That's why. The Bible says, Paul said in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You know how faith began in your life? You heard the word of Christ. You may have thought you came to Christ because your parents taught you the gospel, because you read a pamphlet, whatever. That may all be part of it. But in that process, somewhere along the line, you heard the words of Christ and the Holy Spirit used the words of Christ to plant in your soul faith, saving faith. That's what happened to this woman. She heard of Christ and in that moment, in the seed of faith was planted in her heart by the Holy Spirit, reference John 3. All right, this is how it works. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. You know, she, she knew about Jesus. She had heard about Jesus. The seed of faith was planted. And so she ran to Jesus for help when he was available. This is a demonstration of saming faith. Question, do you want your friends, your family members, your loved ones, your neighbors to know Christ? I'm sure we'd all say yes if we're Christians. Of course. Well, how's that going to happen? 
by hearing the word of Christ. That's how. The same way this woman came to faith. The same way you came to faith, your friends and children and neighbors will come to faith. It's by hearing the word of Christ. So this ought to be clear to us what our priorities ought to be. Uh, maybe at your next uh, Christmas gift to your neighbors, you ought to include a little paperback gospel of John with your uh, healthy sugar cookies that you give them. This would be a good thing. Next time you're sitting at your barber or your hairstylist or your mechanic, the word of Christ would be the thing that would plant the seed of faith there. The next thing I want you to see that is a mark of genuine God-pleasing faith is also found in verse 25. And it's so obvious, we might, might, we might even miss it. And it's simply this. This kind of faith comes to Jesus. <laughs> you know, do I need to say that? It's really the point of the story. But in fact, this is a, a mark of genuine faith. It, that kind of faith, always finds its way to Jesus. Always. Remember, Jesus intentionally went to Tyre to meet this woman. Tyre was about a 30-mile walk away from where Jesus had had this debate with the, the Pharisees and scribes about defilement. And this woman, and Jesus knew this, of course, was, was desperate because her little daughter was possessed by a demon which was destroying her. Having an idolatrous background, you can imagine the things she tried to help her daughter, you know, going to this witch doctor, going to that idol, going to this... On and on it went, most likely, from thing to thing to thing. And after much futility, she heard about Jesus, and something clicked in her. It's called faith, the work of the Holy Spirit. And she, what? Ran to Jesus. All these other things didn't work. All these other things didn't satisfy her faith. What did? Jesus. So if you have faith that saves, if you have authentic faith that pleases God, guess where you'll find yourself? In the presence of Christ, that's where. You will run to Jesus every time. You, you will not stop at, at self-help. You won't stop at worldly solutions. You won't even stop at church, per se, or religion. Saving faith is distinctly drawn to Jesus every time. It's not satisfied unless it ends there with Christ. This is what John at 6.44 says. Jesus states that when God the Father draws people, he draws them to whom? All the Father draws unto me, Jesus said. So if you have saving faith, you'll always have an interest in being with Jesus. This is really important to keep in mind. So examine your faith right now. A little box that you've got next to that, this, this note. You should be able to identify the central affection of your heart resting on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Does it? Your faith shouldn't be resting in any particular church, pastor, or author, or group of people. It should be resting squarely on Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you are independent of God's churches. I'm not making that point. I'm saying you will be with Christ. You, you will not be, your, your faith won't be resting on your church, this church, or any church, or that author, or that speaker. No. 
It'll be in Christ. That's where your affection will be. The fourth mark that we see here in this text is also found in verse 25. And it is this. God-pleasing faith is humble and reverent. Humble and reverent. Look how she approached Jesus. Did she come in naming and claiming? Did she come in on, you know, on all cylinders, barrels blazing? No. She came and did what? Fell at his feet. That's what she did. Her faith was humble and reverent. She knew full well that she didn't merit or deserve blessing of Jesus. There was no naming and claiming here. She actually knew the, that the opposite was true. She deserved nothing. She, she, she had no claim on the blessing of Christ. She was completely dependent on the mercy and kindness of Jesus. She came and fell at his feet and pleaded. God's word identifies this attitude in numerous places, Old and New Testament. Listen to King David in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That's what God's pleased with. That kind of humility. Not a prideful, arrogant approach. No, a broken and contrite one. The same author, King David, Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Humble, reverent. And then Jesus in Matthew 5 in verse 3 and 6, blessed are the poor in spirit, not the haughty, not the self-sufficient, but the bankrupt, the ones who know they have a need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a humility there that Christ is after. And then verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So is your faith a hungry faith? I, I would hope so. Um, this is important. Faith requires humility, and this requires asking for help. Pride is independent, pride is self-sufficient, but God-pleasing faith is humble, and it asks for help. This is, this is one thing that's particularly um, obvious in our culture, uh, isn't it? What's the standard reply to, hey, can I help you? No, I got it, isn't it? I got it. No, really, that's a 500-pound rock. You don't, you don't want my help? I can help you roll that thing. No, I'm good. All right. I'll call the ambulance so they'll be here when it's important. And, and this is the fifth mark of, of authentic, God-pleasing faith. It asks for help. This is what the woman did. She recognized her need. She was humbly and reverent involved. She, she came to Jesus and did what? Asked for help. <laughs> Something we just can't do very well. But what an important point this is. These are all important, but, but this particular point demonstrates that pride has been broken. When you're willing to ask for help, you're, you're, you're admitting you can't move the 500-pound rock. That's what it means when you say, hey, can you help me with this rock? In Psalm 51, David says the same thing. I want a broken heart. You see, pride, God, God's opposed to the proudful, isn't he? Pride, he, res, he resists the pride, prideful. And he does so because pride restricts the individual from asking for help. 
As long as you're prideful, you won't be asking. So as long as pride remains in place, genuine faith will be absent. And this doesn't mean that we Christians won't struggle with pride. We will, but this is the point of sanctification, isn't it? This is why we have the Holy Spirit actively working in us to to beat down this monster of pride that we all struggle with. The sixth mark that comes to the surface here in this story in Mark 7 is this kind of faith is persistent. It's persistent. I think this sticks out real plainly in the text here. If there's anything you come away with in this story is that this woman just wouldn't let it go. Right? She was determined. And who can blame her? Look at it says there that she begged Jesus to cast out, verse 26, cast out. She begged. Uh, This this is a a verb that, and verbs come with tenses, and the tense of this verb is an ongoing action. Okay? So what this lady was doing was pestering Jesus to death. She was, Jesus, come on. Hey, please, answer me. Hey, over here. You know, look up here, look up here. You know, that kind of thing. She wouldn't be silenced. Listen, Matthew's version in, in 1522, this woman was not only determined to help Jesus, but she was noisy in doing so. She kept shouting her request. And Jesus' response to it is a little mystifying, isn't it, at first? It's like, eh. Um, seems a little out of character, Jesus' response to her. He said that he didn't even pay attention to her request. It says he initially ignored her which is why she kept pestering him. Even after Jesus' disciple became annoyed with her, she just kept going. Listen, 1523 of Matthew. But he, that is Jesus, did not answer her a word, looked right through her. And his disciples came and begged Jesus, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. She's getting on our nerves. Please, Jesus, send her away. Well, why didn't he? Because there was something massive to be learned here by his disciples. All external evidence, I think, would have discouraged her and me. I think think once Jesus called me a dog, I'd say, oh, all right. (laughs) Um, But, and then he says, I didn't come to minister to people like you. I came to minister to Israel. So, was Jesus really ignoring this woman, berating this woman? Did he really not care about her? Did he really think that she was a dog? We gotta, we gotta come to some solutions here, quick, right? Before people leave the room mad. Um, and, and of course, of course, which is one reason they were in Tyre to start with, the disciples misinterpreted Jesus completely. He said, yeah, you are a dog. Can you get rid of her, Jesus? Yeah, yeah. Um, she's a nuisance. But Jesus had an agenda that he wanted to accomplish, and he was n- not only wanted to demonstrate love and mercy to this woman and her daughter, he also wanted to teach his disciples something about the character of genuine faith. He was basically saying, without saying it, guys, pay attention, please. Pay attention. So Jesus' initial response, recorded in Matthew 15, 24, 
discouraged the woman, no doubt. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The statement probably made the disciples think that they were right. Yeah, she's not one of us. You know, let's, let's usher her out the door. Um, but Jesus wasn't mean. He wasn't short. He wasn't being rude. He was accomplishing his purpose. Listen closely for it. He had a plan. He, he, he had a plan, and it wasn't to refuse her because she was a Gentile, because she was a woman, because she was an idolater, but he had a plan to actually draw out her faith so it was visible by everybody present. And it looks like this is exactly what happened. How? Well, <laughs> this woman kept after it. She kept pushing Jesus, pestering Jesus. She wouldn't give up. She, she got even close enough to fall at his feet, uh, which gives an idea that maybe she was in the background at some point yelling and screaming for help. But she worked her way up to Jesus' feet because of her persistence. And even in that setting, Jesus seemed to continue his rejection of her by saying he shouldn't give the children's bread to dogs. But I think Mark and Matthew are trying to communicate to us that Jesus, in fact, did desire to help her, and he was doing it quietly so that everybody would see it plainly. Remember, both Matthew and Mark called Jesus a friend of sinners. And this doesn't sound too friendly, does it? This woman fit the bill. She was certainly a sinner, but Jesus didn't sound friendly. But he, remember, he wanted to teach about faith to her and his disciples and, and to us in this room. So you want to understand faith a little more deeply? Listen up. First of all, even though she was thought of as a dog to the Jews, including the 12 disciples here, there were two terms for, the, for dogs in, uh, first century Jew, in first century Israel. One was a reference to the scavenger, the 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 rabid dog, the, the, the dangerous dog that everybody despised and hated, literally, because they were bad animals. And then there also had a term for dog that was used of household domesticated animals, the ones that we enjoy, the ones that people drive around town in the back of their window in their car, those kind of things. Um, and that's the term that Jesus used for this woman. Not the scavenger, not the dangerous one, but the actual word literally is little puppy. That's the word that was used by Jesus. So he wasn't referring to her as his disciples were thinking of her and as all of Judaism would think of a Gentile, these ravenous, dangerous animals who are filthy dogs. No, Jesus said little puppy. So there's a hint for us, and a massive hint for them. The disciples probably took a double take and said, no, 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 she's the bad dog. She's not good. Jesus, what are you talking about? This woman, more importantly, probably did a double take, and, uh, and then she picked up on it immediately. She picked up on what Jesus was doing. She, she began to realize in this Excuse me, in this moment, when Jesus used this endearing term for dog, 
that Jesus was actually wooing her, saying, come in a little closer. I want to help you understand. I want my disciples to see what's happening here. It was like a carrot in front of the woman. It confused the disciples, but drew the woman. She wanted, she wanted to, to understand more clearly who Jesus was and, and what was happening in her heart. And Jesus simply said, come in closer. Jesus wanted this woman to verbally express this God-given faith. He knew it was in there. He, he wanted to see it come out. He wanted this woman to fight through all these negative things, all these barriers to get Jesus' help. Man, we have so many lessons here we could, you know, flesh out this morning. How often are we willing to fight through barriers to get Jesus' help? Or do we give up asking for help after one prayer and no answer? Do we give up too easily? Do we believe strongly enough to keep pushing through hardship, the passage of time, and the seeming deaf ear of God to get help from Jesus or not? How authentic is your faith? Do you see this woman? Do you, do you, are you starting to realize what she began to realize at this moment? Genuine, authentic faith is persistent. It doesn't die with bad weather. It doesn't go away with a little bit of a harsh answer. You know how many people get offended and leave churches every Sunday? A lot. Because they hear things that, that faithful preachers will say, like, hey, you're a sinner. I'm out of there. That's not genuine faith. That's not possessed by that person. If you're offended, you walk out the back door because someone tells you the truth. Right? Same story. Jesus loves persistent faith. Genuine faith is persistent faith. You remember in, in Luke 18, Jesus was trying to explain this same thing when he told his listeners about a, a widow who was pestering a neighbor for help. Here's the story. For a while, this neighbor refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this woman keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. I'm just going to give in. Jesus said, that's the kind of determination, persistence, that demonstrates genuine faith. You see, Jesus desires a hungry faith. He desires that your faith represents a reality of the kind of faith that is possessed by those who Jesus gives it to. If, if your faith walks away at first blush, at first difficulty, at the first raindrop, it's not genuine faith. Jesus rejects lazy faith. It isn't faith, but we'll call it lazy faith. So is your faith hungry? Is it, is it determined? Is it persistent? Do you desperately plead with God that he will do great things for you, for your family, for your church, 
Or do you walk away at the first sign of a storm? This is the kind of faith, this persistent faith, that moves the hand of God. So what are you praying for persistently? Got anything on the list that's been there for a long time? God doesn't re reward spiritual laziness or a lazy faith. This woman's persistence was an outward evidence of an inward faith. He, he doesn't, he's not, Jesus isn't saying, well, if you'll work to be more persistent, then your faith will become real. It's, it's the opposite. If your faith is real, you'll be persistent. Seventh mark is that this type of faith is thoughtful. It's the thoughtful faith. It's not mindless spirituality, but it's thoughtful in its pursuit of God. Was this woman's response to Jesus' dog comments thoughtful or what? It was extremely thoughtful. It's impressive, actually, how thoughtful it is. It's so easy for us to, to drift into mindless spirituality, especially in church or during your own private worship time. I just got to get my reading done and check. Okay, prayer, Jesus, help missionaries, bye. Um, well, just think, think back a half an hour here in this building during this last half hour. Can you say that your worship was thoughtful or was it mindless? Read the words on the overhead. This is where the rubber meets the road, folks, right? Authentic, God-pleasing faith is thoughtful. This woman intently listens to the words of Jesus and thoughtfully responded. Jesus doesn't ask anything else of us than he asks of this woman. He gives, of his, gives us his word, right, in the scriptures and waits for a thoughtful response. What's it going to be? It, it listens to the words of Christ, that is, this genuine faith listens to the words of Christ and responds thoughtfully. Now, of course, Jesus prompted this woman to respond, but is not the scriptures full of the prompts of the Holy Spirit? Continually. What's our response to these things? Is it mindless spirituality? God's not interested in canned and tired responses to the words of Christ. They don't impress him or anybody else. The only people they impress are those who are using them. So Jesus was drawing out this woman's faith. She wasn't being ignored. She was being quietly encouraged to speak from her heart and express the true faith that Jesus himself had placed there. Planted the seed. Now come on, bring it out. The woman's response to Jesus' comment about giving children's bread to dogs was prompted by Jesus. Of course, despised dogs weren't in the house with children around the dining room table and this woman was tracking. Oh, I'm the domesticated little puppy kind of dog. Oh, okay, I'll run with you on this one, Jesus. Let's keep talking. What are you, what's going on here? 
So she began to understand that Jesus wanted her to express her faith. And it looks like she did. What, what a, a beautiful picture here. Her faith blossoming right in front of Jesus, right in front of the twelve, right in front of herself. Her God-given faith became more evident the longer this conversation went on. Look at the way this woman, this desperate woman, responded to Jesus. She essentially said this, if I could paraphrase. Yes, Lord, I agree with you that I'm in the dog category. But all little dogs, as you say, have masters. And in this case, that is you. I am a humble member of this house as your dog. Please supply my needs. Which brings us back to Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God for... Whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. She believed. She came. She expected him to reward her. This is what genuine faith does. It's thoughtful. And to add on to this thoughtful concept of genuine faith, it's not only not spiritually minded, it's spiritually focused, it's prompted by the Holy Spirit in the words of Christ and responds thoughtfully, but it also, in terms of thoughtfulness, thinks of others. This woman was actually in the presence of Jesus for her daughter. Right? This is the practical outworking of authentic faith. Faith is a gift from God, right? This is what Ephesians 2 tells us. Faith is a gift from God. It's initiated by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, John 3. And when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in a person, he always brings with him a transplanted heart. Always. The Holy Spirit never moves in and leaves you with an old, crusty, stone heart. He always brings a new heart with him. And, and this new heart begins to grow and be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And he begins to sanctify us and, and we become more and more like Jesus and the the sinful selfishness begins to weaken and the concern for others begins to be strengthened. We become more like Jesus, Philippians 2. And so this woman, unbeknownst to her, actually believed in Christ and it was, de it was demonstrated by her thoughtful faith. She, she was thoughtful with the words of Christ. She was thoughtful about her daughter. She was thinking of others instead of herself. And this, this truth is so clearly presented here for us. The longer I know Jesus and have the Holy Spirit in me, the less selfish I am and the more I am concerned with the needs of others around me. And by the way, you can, you can kind of give yourself a, a, an ex, a spiritual exam by just remembering your prayers. Are your prayers about you or about others? If your prayers are about you, you're at the beginning of your spiritual journey. If your prayers are about others, you're a little more seasoned, as we see here. So this story, amongst many things, teaches us to pray for others, to be importunate prayers, pesty prayers, people who won't give up type of prayers, who keep on praying. I've shared this story before, but uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and um, every night my parents led us in family worship, and uh, one of the things that happened every single night was a prayer for my Uncle Virgil. My Uncle Virgil didn't know the Lord. My dad came to Christ when he was 21 and married my mom when he was, I think, 25 or something like that. 
and they um, had kids, four of us, and every night we had family worship, and every night we prayed for Uncle Virgil's salvation, and without fail. And Uncle Virgil's wife, Aunt Joyce, and their two kids, my cousins. And this went on until I left the home. We prayed for Uncle Virgil. When I come home for Thanksgiving, we'd pray for Uncle Virgil. And Christmas, pray for Uncle Virgil. Praying for Uncle Virgil, you know. <laughs> and, you know, nothing seemed to happen. God's ears were deaf until about, I don't know, a year before I was married. Then Uncle Virgil came to faith. Because, well, the grace and mercy of God, of course, but he uses thoughtful, persistent faith. Praying for people. This is evident in this story. This woman certainly wanted to meet the wants of her daughter and the needs of her daughter, but there's times that come in the life of every parent when they can't do either. Meet the wants or the needs of their children. Well, we can always pray, right? Amen. Amen. So this is seen clearly here. I think this passage, is, this passage encourages us to keep praying for others, even when it, there seems to be no hope. And I could maybe say especially when there's no hope, you keep praying. Samuel Rutherford, the great Puritan and Scottish minister, who suffered greatly for Christ, by the way, and he, he wrote, he, when he went to jail because of his faith and because of, he was a pastor and it was illegal to be a pastor in his day. So he went, spent a lot of time in jail and suffered there a lot. And he would write to his parishioners from jail and these are called the letters of Samuel Rutherford, which all of you should own and read regularly. The letters of Samuel Rutherford. One of these letters, speaks to a friend, one of his parishioners who's out on the outside suffering for one reason or another. And this is what Rutherford wrote to this friend. He said, it is faith's work to claim and challenge loving kindnesses out of the roughest strokes of God. You're going through something tough? Your children going through something tough? What's faith's response to that? What are we supposed to how do we respond to that? Do we, you know, bag it and this must not be true. God doesn't love me. He's not good. Or faith work is to claim and challenge loving kindness out of all the roughest strokes of God. That's faith's response. The loving hand of God is here involved. And I just need longer time to, to observe it, to see it myself. Finally, the last mark of, of genuine God-pleasing faith here is that it glorifies God. Glorifies God. In Matthew 28, 15, 28, uh, Jesus said this to the woman, Woman, you have great faith. That would do it for me. I'd be happy with that. But you know, this, this request, this, this desperate request that this woman made was not made for her own glory. It wasn't made for her daughter's glory. It was made for the glory of God. She, she received a blessing from Jesus that brought glory to God. It's important to note that she wasn't asking for herself. She wasn't asking for a raise, a new car, a better husband. 
No. She was asking for something that would only bring glory to God, no one else. If God did this, he would be glorified, not me. No. And Jesus, of course, responded to her genuine faith by fulfilling her God-glorifying request. <laughs> fulfilling her request was an incredible miracle in itself. In what way? Well, we're used to Jesus doing fantastic things. But by this point in Mark, right, we're halfway through the book, we should, we, oh yeah, Jesus does cool stuff. This is on another level of cool. He didn't have to stand over this girl. He didn't have to be in her presence. He wasn't even in the same town, most likely. He says, go home, your daughter's well. That's pretty impressive. The creator of the universe simply said words and it was done. Who, who does that glorify? <laughs> God alone, right? So are our, are our prayers, is, does our faith glorify God? Or are we hoping that it, some of that glory kind of trickles down on me? You know, my great faith, my great faith. Well, what do you think this woman would say about the matter? Probably not that. Because the glory of God was there at stake. So friends, we have, we have a wonderful story here in Mark 7 that falls in line and in sequence with what Mark is trying to do for us. He wants us to see that Jesus is the solution to chaos. And, and, and in seeing that, we realize the defilement is within. The sin problem would come here, this is the source. But faith in Christ changes everything, everything. And this is the first example he uses, an undeserving Gentile. This is what can happen for those who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I like the sounds of that. Let's pray. Father, we, we rejoice in, in what you did through um, Jesus with this woman back in the first century. We're astonished at her circumstances and and are encouraged by the faith that you gave her. I pray that, that we would take note of these things, that we would see them and be encouraged, that we would recognize a little more clearly today what genuine, authentic faith should look like in our own lives. God, I pray that we wouldn't be self-deceived by sitting here week after week and calling this faith, or even taking up our Bible and reading and doing all things Christian, but that we would see these miraculous things, these eight things in our faith and in, in the faith, if it be genuine, that you've given us. Father, accomplish your work in us through the Holy Spirit, we pray. Um, continue to bless us in your beloved Son, our Savior. Uh, grow us into his image. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning.